scripture reading today comes from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Father, uh, we need you. Lord, we need Jesus. We're in desperate need of Jesus Christ more and more and more. You know this, but Father, quite often we forget this. Thank you for pouring grace out on us anyway. Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would pour your grace out upon us for transformation. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word that we would receive your word with glad and sincere hearts. Lord, that our hearts would be open to hear from you. Lord, that you would change us. Make us ever more like you. Father, help us to walk and live and love as who you've called us to be and the identity that you've given to us as sons and daughters of the living Lord. And Father, for me, as I preach your word this morning, I ask you, Lord, to take this broken vessel and pour out good, clean, living water for those that are your people and those that are not yet your people. That we might bring you honor and glory and praise. That we might be transformed and know the joy of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. And so we, we continue our series this morning in, in the, the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in this place, my, my friends, where there's a... Um, there's a transition from the Beatitudes to a series of, of, of teachings from Jesus. We went through the Beatitudes for a few weeks and, and this, this series of teaching on Jesus or from Jesus, some would call them a series of moral ethics where he will tell us things like, you've heard it said, but I say. Or you've heard it said this, but I say. And he's taking the teachings that, that they have grown up with and he is taking them deeper, 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 deeper. This passage serves as a very important transition between those two things. As Jesus defines, defines the law of God for us, as well as the importance of the law of God for those that are his people. 
and those that are not yet his people. And that's important also. Remember the scene of the Sermon on the Mount. You've got Jesus, he's gone up on a hill, on a mountain, and he has sat down. And he's sitting down, and uh, before him are his disciples and, and other believers that are not disciples. There weren't a lot of those, but there were some. And then behind them and around him, you would have had a whole lot of people that were not believers in Jesus Christ. The, the number was probably in the thousands. So this is a place where Jesus is teaching his disciples about discipleship. And he's teaching those that are not yet his disciples about discipleship and evangelism and the law of God. If I were to stand here this morning and ask you this question, I'd, I'd love to hear your response. Do you want to go to Paris? Yes. <laughs> Who wants to go to Paris? Raise your hand. I want to go to Paris. I love Paris. I love the people of Paris. I love, I love the bridges. I love the rivers. I love the food. I, I love the history. I love the museums. I love to walk the streets of Paris. I, I, I just, I, I love Paris. But it's, it's very important that we be talking about the same Paris. You probably thought I meant Paris, France. Did you know that if you went to Wisconsin and decided you were gonna go to Paris, Wisconsin, you would have three choices. There are three Parises in Wisconsin alone. There are two in Ohio, and one has no residents. There's a Paris, Tennessee, with about a population of, of 10,000, and they have an Eiffel Tower. It is 70 feet tall. There's a Paris, Texas, which is a good bit larger, there's also a Paris, Kentucky, a Paris, Mississippi, uh, a Paris, Maine, which is a nice little village set up on a hill. Many of the states in our nation have a city or community or crossroads called Paris. And almost all of those, I couldn't find any exceptions, but let's hold out that there might be one. Almost all of those are named after Paris, France. They're... They're cities that are named in honor of Paris, France. In some ways, hoping to be like Paris, Tennessee, a copy of Paris, France. It's not the same. I've been there. <laughs> but they're not the original. So if we begin to talk about Paris, we have to understand which Paris we're talking about. And if we begin to talk about the law of God, we need to make sure we understand what it is we're talking about and that we're on the same page. So we're going to try and answer that with three questions. First, whose law is it? Second, does all the law really matter? And third, and this is one that we, we all struggle with, do I measure up? Do I measure up to the law of God? Whose law is it? Well, we would probably all say, well, it's God's law. But... If we were to get a printout of our daily thoughts, we would see revealed in that printout that we don't always believe that or act like we believe that. Whose law is it? Jesus opens up pretty quickly in this passage, verse 17 and 18, by telling the people, the Pharisees that were, 
that were present, the scribes that were present, the disciples, all the unbelievers, the Romans and the Jews that were all present by saying this law is mine. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Listen to this, verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then in verse 20, he says the same thing. For I tell you, I tell you, I say to you, I tell you. It's the same word in the Greek, say and tell. I say to you, I tell you. What Jesus is saying to all those that are listening to him is that this is not your law, this is my law. This law proceeds from me. You wanna know what my character is like? Look at my law. You wanna know my glory? Look at my law. You wanna know how I've called you to live, those of you that I've created, which is all of you, by the way. Look at my law. This is my law. This isn't your law that you can manipulate and change and twist and turn and choose which ones you want to obey. This is my law. That statement alone would have been grounds for, for, for death. The Pharisees and the scribes, those that were more devout Jews, would have been picking their jaws up off the ground. Others would have been looking for the goon squads of the Pharisees that were coming to arrest Jesus on the spot and take him out. For Jesus to say, I tell you, or I say to you, he's taking authority that is already rightfully his, and he is declaring to all those present, this is my law. It proceeds from me. It's a reflection of who I am. And since I have made you, it, it belongs to you as you are to obey it and live in it. It's my law, which means Jesus is also then claiming to be God. Why was it important that he declares that right up front? Because he's also gonna say, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So those that were that were knowledgeable in, in their Jewish history, which would have been all those Jews that were present, they know that the ceremonial law, the law of the Old Testament that was ceremonial in nature, uh, sacrifices, uh, feast, cleansings, all those things pointed towards a coming Messiah. And so for Jesus to say, I'm going to fulfill it, and for him to say, I, it's my law, I say to you, he's saying, I am God, I am the fulfillment of the law. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. There's also those that are standing there, sitting there before him that are asking the question, is he, is he worth listening to? Because if he's, if he's claiming to be God, if he's, if he's claiming to have authority over the law, and yet they realize that he's broken their laws in their mind, their laws, not his laws, but their laws, they're looking at that thinking, should we even be here? Should we waste our time with this guy? Because what they had seen so far is they had seen him healing on the Sabbath. He's broken the Sabbath. They, they've seen him spending time with women. Oh, that's a no-no. You go to the temple and the men and the women aren't even on the same side of the temple. They're not gonna worship together. The women on one side, men on the other side. A Jewish man wasn't going to even talk to a woman that was not his wife, his daughter, his mother. A rabbi certainly wasn't going to be found in doing any of that. And yet Jesus is spending time with women and raising up the, the, the status of women to where he has called them to be all of this time from the beginning. 
that women have the same value as men. Now we might say, well duh, of course, that you even mentioned that, Harrison, is an insult. I don't mean it to be an insult. I mean it to be a de declaration of Jesus saying, this is the way I've declared it. It is, it is humans, people, that have that differentiated and said, no, a man is higher than a woman in value. God says it will not be. So th these people are, are looking at him and they're saying, you've broken that law, you spent time with women. You've broken that law, you've, you've healed on the Sabbath. Your disciples walk through the fields and they pick grain and eat them on the Sabbath. And their hands are unclean too. Double trouble. So he's got to say up front, you've seen these things and you're going to see more but I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And then he goes on here and he talks more about what the law is. And then in the coming weeks, he's going to take the law deeper. It's his law and he's there to fulfill it. We'll talk more about what that means when, when, it, when I say that he's there to fulfill it, when Jesus says he's there to fulfill it. Second Corinthians chapter one, Paul uh, talks a little bit about this when he says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Your translation might say all, all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. He's fulfilled all of the promises. He's not there to abolish the law. He's saying that not only is the law worthy of being kept, but the law flows from me. In other words, I am. I am. I am that I am. I am God. And you're not. There is no fourth person of the Trinity. Does it matter that all the law is his? Yeah, it does. Does all the law matter as much as other parts of the law? Yes. Yes, it does. Remember, it was just a little incident in the garden that broke it all to begin with, and we inherit that brokenness of the law. And it wasn't just the eating of the fruit. It was Eve wanting to be like God. It was even that motive behind Eve taking the fruit from the serpent. When the serpent says, did God really say? And so Eve takes the fruit because Eve wanted to be like God and her husband who was with her. The motive behind it even matters. Does it all matter? Absolutely. Jesus says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, till the end of time, not an iota, not a dot will pass through the law until all is accomplished. Well, what in the world is an iota and a dot? These were the smallest little strokes or letters or parts of letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So uh, it might be uh, on, a, on a Hebrew alphabet, you might have a little, a little tagline on, on the end of a letter, just a little point that changes it from one letter to another. The least teeny tiny stroke of a pen. Even that little teeny tiny stroke will not pass away until it's all accomplished. Not even the dot on the top of an eye will be, will, will be uh, deleted, will, pa will pass away until all's been accomplished. So Jesus is saying, even the least little bits have to be accomplished. He's saying it all matters. And he's gonna open up a little bit more and challenge those that were there and challenge you and I. So what does he mean when he says, uh, when he speaks of the least of it? In verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is the least of these commandments? Well, there's a, a couple of ways 
to look at that. Um, I think the primary way is what we're gonna see in verse 21 and 22 next week when Nathan uh, opens up and, and, and takes us into that realm. But I wanna address it just a little bit today just so we have an example of it. Verse 21, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. So, okay, got that, right? Don't murder anybody. That's easy, right? That's the least one. Don't murder anybody. Just don't do it. But then he goes on. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Folks, I think if we look at that and we see that there's this least part and there's the greatest part, there's the shallow part, the surface part, and there's the deeper part, I think we can see that every one of us has broken it. So if just being angry with your brother makes you a murderer, who's guilty? Who's guilty besides me? Come on, some of you either asleep, so your hands aren't up, or you're refusing to acknowledge that you've been angry with your brother or your sister. Angry at sister matters too. So we're all guilty, in other words. And what that, if, we, if we read that carefully, we don't have to read it carefully, we just read it, and we see what that means is that we, we're liable to judgment. We're liable to the hell of fire. So if we relax the law and, and say, well, it, you know, it, it, those things don't matter, it's just the actual physical killing of your brother matters. The other things, just the anger, that doesn't matter. He's saying you're gonna be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not just, not just here that we see that, but we go on over to Matthew 22, verse 34 and following. Let me just take us there for a minute. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, remember that word greatest, okay? Greatest. Great. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's what Jesus said. Okay? I didn't make that up. And then he goes on, he said, the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. So he takes it much deeper than just um, don't murder your brother. He takes it deeper even than don't be angry with your brother. And he takes it to, to a place where it's a positive emotion and a positive action of loving your neighbor as yourself. So first, don't kill him. Second, don't be angry with him. That's the negative thing. The positive, physically, actively love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there's the, the least, but then there's the, the, the deeper things, and, and we're, we're liable for all of those. And it's not just the, the law itself that we, we do, it's what we teach. I mean, look at what he says. He said, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. So there, there's a teaching thing that's going on here. Remember who's in the crowd. You've got the disciples up front, so you've got the 12. Then you've got others that are also believers, but a whole lot of those that are not yet believers. And Jesus is teaching them, he's discipling them. Disciples disciple others. He's also evangelizing those or discipling those that are not yet believers. So evangelism is just the discipleship of those that are not yet believers. Evangelism is the discipleship of what a, what a wedding is to marriage. You don't have a marriage without a wedding. But a wedding doesn't end with a wedding. It continues with a marriage. Evangelism is the first part of discipleship. Discipleship doesn't exist without evangelism. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and others that are present that he has an expectation 
that this kingdom is going to grow. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. So there's the teaching others to do the same that he is expecting to take place going forth from the Sermon on the Mount. That was true for the 12, that was true for others that were believers in Christ. It was true for all those that would then become believers in Christ. So he's giving them a challenge and and an upfront disclosure statement, if you will. He's saying, if you follow me, this is what I'm expecting. That you will then disciple others. Both those that are believers and those that are unbelievers. You might say, well, I don't believe I'm supposed to disciple unbelievers. You know, I've heard that. I still don't get it. I don't get it. Um, I think Scripture's really clear that if you're a believer in Christ, you're supposed to be uh, active in discipleship and evangelism, discipling others, evangelizing others. That's there. I I, I don't want to get to heaven. I don't want you to get to heaven and look Jesus in the face and say, hey, Jesus, you'll be proud of me. You know that, that John 14 thing where you said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. You'll be happy to know that I kept that to myself and I didn't let the secret out. Don't want to go there. He gave us that for a reason. Not just for ourselves, but so that we would take the gospel and go forward, that we would be a part of building the kingdom of God for his glory, that others too might know the joy and the hope of heaven. Without the hope of heaven, what do we have? We have nothing. Why would we keep the greatest story ever told to ourselves? So when Jesus is giving this knowledge to the disciples and to other Christians that were there, he's also giving that to others that are unbelievers, that are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. So that all would have the truth of the gospel. Not be shackled with a law from a Pharisee or relaxing the law like a Roman might do to an anything goes mentality. We want to know more specifically about what he's, what he's talking about. We can go over to uh, Mark chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible with you, you know, the old-fashioned kind that looks like this, uh, or if you've got a digital device, whatever you want to use, uh, go over to Mark chapter 7, and we'll be back and forth between Mark 7 and, and Matthew 5 a little bit for the rest of our time. In, in Mark chapter 7 and verse 6, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So what the Pharisees were were doing and what they had been doing, what everyone there knew they were doing and what even what, what we often do today is we take the commandments of men and we turn them into doctrines of God. In so doing, we're adding to the law of God. We take the commandments or the traditions of men, maybe it's the commandment or tradition of your family, the commandment or tradition of, of your denomination, of your church, of your cultural background, of your, your, your nationality, whatever it happened, might happen to be, no matter where you're from, we, we all have traditions and we all have culture. When we take those cultures and those traditions and we teach them as if they are doctrines of God with the same force as if they are 
doctrines of God, then we have added to the law of God, and Jesus would clarify, would, 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 would call us in that place hypocrites, as he did the Pharisees of that day in Mark 7. We say that we believe in Christ and Christ alone, and yet, as he says in verse 9 to them of chapter 7 of, of Mark, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So what commandment were they rejecting? The commandment they were rejecting was that they would not add to or take away from the law of God. The commandment that they were rejecting was that Christ would be enough. And so they were adding to. So we do the same thing, don't we? I, I do. I, I, I think I do. We add to the law of God in different ways. Um, we, we give different values to different people. Uh, in, in, in our culture, we, we, sadly, we sadly value the born over the unborn. In some places, we value the young over the old or the old over the young. In many places in our country and in our world, maybe in your own life, we value men over women. We value wealthy over the poor, the educated over the uneducated. And yet in Galatians in chapter three, verse 28, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. Now obviously there are those that are men and women, so what's he talking about? He's saying that, that none, none of them have value over the other. Yet we, you and I, we add to the law of God when we value one person over another person. We value one tradition over another tradition. Whether it's a musical tradition, denominational tradition, whatever it happens to be, cultural tradition, we value one over another, we're adding to the law of God. We've taken commandments or traditions of men and made them into doctrine. We take away from or relax the law of God in large ways, such as in human sexuality. Scripture's very clear. There's, there's, no, there's no wiggle room. There's no gray area in here. Scripture's clear that, that sex is is great, designed by God to be between one man and one woman that are married to each other. And that's it. Anything else, anything else is, is not of God. God's really clear in that. We'll talk more about that in two weeks when we look at human sexuality. But God's really clear in that, but, but still, we in our culture, both um, in in the outwardly non-Christian culture and in some that, that would pretend to have that Christian culture, we, we try to relax some of that and we try to relax the sanctity of life. We take away, we relax the law of God. We say, did Jesus really say? Much like the serpent tempted Eve, we tempt our own hearts and we tempt each other. Did, did God really say? Did he? Did he? Did he? 
and we convince ourselves that maybe he didn't really say. But my friends, he really did say. He didn't say any of what he's given to us in order to keep us from having fun or that we will not be able to, to build you know, personal success, none of that. When I was, um, several years ago, we had, a, we had a dachshund. Now, dachshunds are awesome dogs. I prefer my lab. <laughs> but dachshunds are awesome dogs. I grew up with them. We had one several years ago, and when a big dog would walk down the street, this dachshund would just yelp and yelp and yelp and fight at the window and fight at the door to get out because that little dachshund was convinced it was the most ferocious thing in the neighborhood. It was gonna rush out and take on whatever that big dog was that was going down the street. And that dachshund was convinced that I had that door closed to keep it from having any fun. The reality was I had that door closed to keep that dachshund alive. The psalmist declares that he delights in the law of God because he knows that the law of God is, is there for us to be blessed, for us to walk in the joy of the Lord, to us, for us to walk in the fullness of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, not to keep us from having fun, but to, so that we're having more fun, a deeper fun. We're not to add to or relax the law of God. We redefine God when we do either of those, when we legalistically add to the law of God or we, with what I would call antinomianism, antinomos, a no law, when we take away from the law of God, we're redefining God. Revelation 22, we're warned about that again at the end of the book where we read that we're not to take away or add to anything in the book, in the word of God. My friends, the law is serious and it is life-giving. It is all the more serious when we see that it isn't about actions only, but also about our hearts and our heart motives. We go to, back to Mark in chapter seven, in verse 20. And Jesus is speaking again. He said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things, he calls them, come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus is very clear. It's not just the outside stuff. It's the inside stuff that makes the outside stuff happen. It's out of the heart flows the stuff. That's why we talk about having a heart that is transformed by the gospel. That's why we want to see Annapolis renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ as we ourselves are being renewed by the gospel. We want a new heart for out of a new heart flows new life. Words and actions matter but they come from our heart and heart transformation. There, before we go on, let me, let me define a little bit more about the law that he's talking about, that we have, to, we have to see that it matters. When Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law to fulfill it, what's he talking about? Well, there was a ceremonial law. That was the, the, the sacrifices, the feasts, the cleansings that point towards Jesus. He fulfilled all of those. We're not under the ceremonial law anymore. Anyone that tells you that you are is adding to the law of God. 
there was a civil law of Israel. That was the law of the nation of Israel. Uh, we're not under the law of the nation of Israel. But there was the moral law also. From the, the moral law you would see is the Ten Commandments, okay? That's an easy gimme, right? And then you see what Jesus is elaborating on here in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we'll see over the next several weeks. We talk about the grace of God seen in the moral ethics. There's also things like uh, Ephesians chapter five when, when Paul addresses familiar relationships between children and parents and husbands and wives and, and those kind of things and business relationships even. So those, that's would also be a part of what we call the moral law. The moral law is not passed away. It, it's still there, but it's there for our, for our good. The moral law has three primary uses. Let me mention a little bit of that to you, okay? Because it's gonna help us answer our next question. The, the moral law reveals the character of God. It reveals his holiness, his glory. It reveals God, it shows us who he is. We want a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we see that in his law. We also see from the moral law that, it's, it's, that he's given us there a standard for living. Out of that flows something else that we have to catch. As we have this character of God that we see clearly in his law, we have a standard for living, we also then see very clearly that we don't measure up. We've broken the moral law. That can cause great sorrow, and it should, but it also drives us to a place of repentance, which is quite beautiful, and cause for rejoicing, because the very act of repentance tells us that there's someone there with his arms open wide, saying, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. When we're able to repent because we recognize that we don't measure up, there is a God that is saying my grace is poured out on you. Run to Jesus. So the moral law is, is also then, it, it, it reveals his grace and his invitation as it drives us to God. So it, it answers our third question before we even ask it. Do I measure up? Do you measure up to the law of God? Do we measure up to the law of God? One of the greatest movies that there's, that's ever happened, a classic, classic, uh, right up there with, you know, the Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, you've got, you've, you've got The Princess Bride. If you haven't seen The Princess Bride, my friends, your education is lacking. Now, see, I've just added to the law, haven't I? But that's true. So, <laughs> I'm kidding. It's really not, sort of. Um, in, in The Princess Bride, one of, one of my favorite characters is, is a guy named Vizzini. Vizzini, he's, he's ridiculous in, in, in who he is. He's this, this guy that's um, a murderous fellow, a deceitful fellow, and his favorite word is what? Inconceivable, exactly. You all know that already. Inconceivable. So as the dread pirate Roberts, also known as Wesley, uh, is, 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 has a ship that's gaining on them, and Vicini looks back and says, inconceivable. And as the dread pirate Roberts is climbing up the cliffs of despair and doesn't fall, Vicini says, inconceivable. Inconceivable. And at that point, of course, 
Nigo Montoya. Wonderful, wonderful man. He knew he was, he knew what his mission was. My name is Inigo Montoya. You have killed my father, prepare to die. Inigo Montoya looks at Vicini and says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Horrible, horrible um, representation there of that, but you get the message. Inconceivable. It is inconceivable. It really does mean what we think it means. It is inconceivable for us to even think that we can measure up to the law of God. It is inconceivable, folks. We can't do it. So why does God give it to us? He gives it to us to drive us to his grace where we once again enter into that intimate, loving, longing relationship with the king of kings. The one that says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. The one that says you are co-heirs with Jesus. The one that says and reminds us that we have an inheritance from the Father as sons and daughters of the living Lord. We don't measure up and that we cannot keep the law of God, but Jesus has kept it. He is the one that has not abolished it, but fulfilled it. And then he gives the benefit of that fulfillment to you and to me so that we do have life forever as long as our faith is in Christ and Christ alone. In the last verse of the passage, verse 20, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't even think about it. Everyone there knew that they weren't going to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is saying to them, as he says to us here today, you're not going to exceed that. It's inconceivable. You don't measure up. But I already have. So come to me that I might be in you and you might be in me and you might have life forever and celebrate the banquet supper of the Lamb forever. We will not exceed that righteousness by any earthly measure. I love the words of Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. Jesus loves to the end. We don't measure up, but praise God, Jesus already has, and he's given that to you and to me. This table that we're about to partake of today is a beautiful illustration of that. It is the grace of God in a very visual way. Paul says this about that table in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread 
and drink of the cup. In a few moments, we're gonna partake of this cup and this bread. But before we do that, we're going to pray. And when we pray, I'd like the elders to come forward as we pray. But what God's teaching us here in this passage is that we are to examine ourselves. We're to examine ourselves and see if we're, we're thinking that we measure up without him. Do we measure up? Or is it inconceivable? Do we recognize that it really is inconceivable? that without Jesus Christ, we don't have God. We don't have life eternal at all. Let us pray. Father, Lord, would you examine us? Holy Spirit, would you examine us and see if there's any unrighteous way in us? Lord, show us where we are, we are pretending to measure up are we putting our faith and our confidence in ourselves rather than in you? Oh Lord, show us again and again and again anew every day, every morning that you have poured your grace out on us, that you have kept the law, fulfilled all of it, that we might have life forever with you, that we might dine at the banquet table of the Lord. Oh Father, what a day that's going to be. But Lord, even now as we partake of this bread and this cup, we pray that you would pour your grace out on us even more. That you would draw us, draw us, Lord, ever more dear, ever more close into your heart. Through Jesus. Through Jesus.